It's October 29th, and you've got a lot to learn. This is Charlottesville Community Engagement, and another installment of a program that seeks to bring you information about the macro and the micro of municipal government, and occasional minutia from the in-between. I'm your host, Sean Tubbs. On the installment of today's show, more campaign finance numbers in advance of Election Day, a preview of a film on Stan Brock, the founder of the Remote Access Medical Corps. The Chickahominy River has elevated levels of forever chemicals known as PFAS, and a quick look at the wonderful world of wastewater, which can help track the scope of the PFAS problem. In today's first subscriber-supported public service announcement, one person wants you to know about another community litter cleanup event in Albemarle, this time tomorrow in the southern part of the county. This latest Love Albemarle event will take place between 8.30 a.m. and 11.30 a.m. at sites in Esmont, Keene, Scottsville, and North Garden. Around 50 people showed up for a similar event in Esmont this past spring, and organizers would like to double that amount. If you're a parent or a guardian and want to spend the morning cleaning up roadside litter with your family, register now. There's a link in the newsletter. Virginia flags will be at half-mast for the next 30 days to mourn the passing of former Governor Linwood Holton. Holton was elected in 1969 and was the first Republican governor in Virginia of the 20th century, though he would later endorse Democratic candidates for statewide office. Holton was born in Big Stone Gap in 1923 and died at his home in Kilmarnock yesterday. While in office, Holton and his wife sent their children to public schools. Governor Ralph Northam noted that in a statement yesterday. He said that Holton faced down Virginia's demons and enabled this commonwealth to look ahead. In the most recent newsletter, we took a look at campaign finance for local candidates in Albemarle County, Charlottesville, and Nelson County. Election Day is just a few days away. Today, let's look at House of Delegates races. Albemarle County currently has four different districts within its boundaries. Let's start with the 25th House District, which stretches from Albemarle into Augusta and Rockingham counties. Democrat Jennifer Kitchen is challenging incumbent Republican Chris Runyon. Kitchen began the October reporting period with $108,930 on hand. She raised an additional $29,673 and spent $37,189. Runyon began October with $77,655, raised an additional $37,837, spent $39,320 in cash, and recorded $16,314 in in-kind donated expenses. The 57th district includes all of Charlottesville and some of Albemarle. Incumbent Democrat Sally Hudson began October with $29,158 on hand. She raised $24,469, spent $7,482 in cash, and recorded $2,499 in in-kind expenses. Hudson's Republican challenger, Philip Hamilton, began the month with $2,917 in the bank. He raised $495 and spent $1,468. The 58th House District consists of eastern Albemarle, all of Greene County, and parts of Fluvanna and Rockingham counties. 
Incumbent Republican Rob Bell began October with $354,466 in the bank, and he raised $89,293 in the first three weeks of the month. Bell's campaign spent $164,137 during the period and recorded $21,435 in expenses. Bell's challenger is Democrat Sarah Ratcliffe. Ratcliffe began October with $14,035 in the bank, and she raised $48,668 in the period. Ratcliffe spent $28,618 in cash and marked down $24,928 in in-kind expenses. Southern Albemarle is within the 59th district, which also includes portions of Appomattox, Buckingham, Nelson, and Campbell counties. Republican Matt Ferris is the incumbent, and he began the month with $29,671 in the bank. His campaign raised $18,285 in the period and spent $38,201 in the first three weeks of October. Ferris had $9,755 in the bank on October 21st. Ferris's Democratic challenger is Ben Moses, who began the month with $84,215 and raised an additional $102,505. Moses spent $67,789 in cash and recorded $61,231 in in-kind expenses. Moses has raised $603,138.01 during the campaign. Special thanks to the Virginia Public Access Project for their work in making this information easily accessible. Before the passage of the Clean Water Act in 1972, it was commonplace for factories to discharge pollutants into rivers and streams without any consideration of the effect on the natural world. Nearly 50 years later, there is a system of permits and regulations in place to improve water quality. The Rivanna Water and Sewer Authority is working with certain industries in the community to pre-treat industrial waste before the effluent is released into the ecosystem. Patricia DeBaugh is the laboratory manager for the RWSA. The purpose of this program is uh, to protect the sewer system and wastewater treatment plants through uh, limits on industrial, uh, industrial waste discharges. This is a requirement by the EPA and the Virginia Department of Environmental Quality. This is part of the Virginia Pollutant Discharge Elimination System, and an annual report is due to the DEQ by the end of every January. The goal is to remove as many fats, oils, greases, and metals, nutrients, and acidity as possible by working with the industries who generate those materials. The ones we're concerned with are in, in the significant industrial user, and that's either a categorical um, user, which is metal finishing, semiconductor manufacturers, or non-categorical, which is discharges more than 25,000 gallons per day or has a potential to adversely affect our treatment processes. The types of businesses of concern include restaurants, breweries, wineries, dentists, and dry cleaners. None of the breweries connected to urban water exceed the 25,000-gallon threshold. Gary O'Connell, executive director of the Albemarle County Service Authority, said there is a program that seeks to remove cooking oil from the wastewater process. There's an active uh, fog, it's fats, oil, grease program that goes on. I know in our case, uh, I believe it's about 260 grease traps that we regularly inspect. On the more industrial level, the RWSA has three companies that are in the pre-treatment program. These are Virginia Diodes, 
Mike Rowe, and Northrop Grumman. Fifty years after the Clean Water Act, there are concerns about other pollutants that are not as easily seen and might have gone unnoticed for quite some time. In 2020, the Virginia General Assembly passed legislation requiring the Virginia Department of Health to study the level of polyfluorinated substances in drinking water. These often go by the acronym PFAS. These are chemical byproducts of the processes used to make nonstick cooking utensils, firefighting foam, food packaging, and other uses. They are known as forever chemicals because they do not break down. The health effects are being studied. The industrial pretreatment work will be used to help identify the scope of the problem. The EQ is going to be sending out a survey to Rogbana's um, significant industrial users to confirm their use and manufacture of pipe PFAS compounds. Yesterday, the DEQ announced that elevated levels of PFAS have been found in the Chickahominy River. They found out from a report from the Newport News Waterworks, and now the DEQ will work with the VDH to further study the issue. Here's a comment from the press release. Newport News Waterworks is continuing to monitor source waters in coordination with state agencies and has assured residents that the water it provides to its customers is safe to drink and has consistently shown PFOS levels well below the lifetime health advisory from the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. Last week, the EPA announced a national strategy will be undertaken to confront the PFOS problem. Here's a comment from a press release from that initiative. EPA's roadmap is centered on three guiding strategies, increase investments in research, leverage authorities to take action now to restrict PFAS chemicals from being released into the environment, and accelerate the cleanup of PFAS contamination. This is something we'll be coming back to in later installments of the program. You are listening to Charlottesville Community Engagement, and next up is a quick Patreon-fueled shout-out. Fall is here, and with it, more moderate temperatures. While your HVAC takes a break, now is the perfect time to prepare for the cooler months. Your local energy nonprofit, LEAP, wants you and yours to keep comfortable all year round. LEAP offers free home weatherization to income and age-qualifying residents. So, if you're age 60 or older, or have an annual household income of less than $74,950, you may qualify for a free energy assessment and home energy improvements such as insulation and air sealing. Sign up today to lower your energy bills, increase comfort, and reduce energy waste at home. And one segment today, an interview segment. The 34th annual Virginia Film Festival is underway and runs through Sunday, Halloween. In all, there are dozens of films being screened in downtown Charlottesville and at other various locations in the area. Some of the films provide glimpses into topics of things that may not be working. One of those is Medicine Man, The Stan Brock Story, a documentary about one person's attempt to bring health care to various places across the United States of America, where regular care is hard to come by. Brock was a British-born adventurer who founded Remote Area Medical. That's a nonprofit that holds free healthcare clinics in remote places across the world. Earlier this week, I spoke with Paul Michael Angel, the director of the documentary, which screens this Sunday at 1.30 p.m. at the Violet Crown. Paul, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I am a Scottish-born British uh, filmmaker based in London. 
Um, I have, I was once an English teacher on an island in the Indian Ocean, um, but finally found my calling in the world of um, documentary film, um, where I've been working for about um, 14 years. And we started making this film in April 2012, and nine years later, it's finally hitting screens in the United States. So this feels pretty, uh, pretty sweet, having waited uh, so long. This is your Virginia premiere of the film uh, this Sunday on Halloween. But first of all, can you tell us a little bit about Stan Brock? He has a very interesting story. Uh, uh, very, very wild youth, and he became a person of the wild. And then, of course, now he spent the latter half of his life, I suppose, uh, working to bring healthcare to the wild. Can you tell us just a little bit about who he was and how you wanted, how you and your team wanted to make a film of him? Stan Brock is a kind of misfit boarding school boy from Britain who fled life in his um, boarding school got on a boat to Guyana, turned up, asked to become a, um, a cowboy, taught himself to become a cowboy, ended up running one of the world's largest cattle ranches. He was then discovered by some US TV producers on holiday huh. who saw him and the way he was, and he was like herding cattle barefoot and riding horses uh, barefoot. And they thought, this guy is absolutely perfect for... Well, uh, for TV in the US. So they took him to America and they put him in the world's first wildlife TV series, which is which is which was called Wild Kingdom, ran throughout the 60s and 70s on NBC, I believe, and, and others. And it was a big part of a lot of people's Sunday nights, from what I can gather. Like I, I, I bump into people all across America who tell me, I remember that show, yeah. You had Marlon Perkins, you had Stan Brock, the Animal Wrangler. If it was dangerous, it was like Stan got sent to do it. If it was, if it was safe, Marlon was standing there presenting, looking suave. Um, but despite this relative fame, um, Stan had something of an epiphany. Um, could call it a midlife crisis. He realized there was a lot more to life and he wanted to do something that had some lasting effect, but he didn't really have much resources. So what he did was he sold all of his worldly goods, all his, you know, his possessions in the land he owned, the house he owned, everything, and plowed it into creating remote area medical. Mm. 25 years later, remote area medical is the largest um, free deliverer of healthcare in the United States. It's helped over a million people. Um, it's run uh, over a thousand clinics across the US. It's a huge, huge organization. And it all comes from the commitment of one guy, a British guy. And that's the connection with me, I suppose. And your filmmakers, and that's quite the commitment to spend eight years or approximately seven and a half years or so, however long it took to make this. Um, how did it? How did his story come across your desk or or the threshold or the transom or however you filmmakers make things how did you well, get up the idea well eight years ago uh, before i had gray hair i mean that's how long this film's taken um my research skills go no further than just simply checking the national newspapers mm -hmm. and i discovered this incredible article about stan brock and it covered all this uh, really rich backstory about uh, england um ranches, cowboys, wildlife TV uh, stardom. 
And then it said he. Then it said that he's running these really important health clinics in the U.S. that are like the last line of defense, the last resort for people who just cannot access the system because it's so expensive or because they live in remote areas. Mm-hmm. So I could see straight away that this is the makings of a feature-length documentary. You've got this very important social issue, but you also have this incredibly rich character who you can just keep like, digging into and finding more interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, I'm just going to Google this organization and call them up and express an interest. And it's a Sunday evening and I call the office and I'm not really expecting anybody to answer because it's, it's a Sunday. And lo and behold, Stan Brock himself answers the phone <laughs> and he's like, Good afternoon, Remote Area Medical, Stan Brock speaking. How can I help you? And I think, wow, like he doesn't just talk the talk. He he walks the walk. This guy is for real. He's obviously a complete workaholic. Mm-hmm. Um I want this film like more than ever. Mm-hmm. So I say that I've just read the article, I'm inspired by it. It's exciting just to be talking to him like seconds seconds after putting the newspaper day. Would he consider doing a film? He said he would consider it, but he'd actually been approached by quite a few filmmakers. He'd just, um, he'd been on CBS by this point. Hmm. So he was fairly known by the national news media. He assessed uh, his options. He called us up and he said, I'd love you to go ahead and make this film. Now, Mm. to this day, I'm not really sure why he chose us. There were other filmmakers who were much more celebrated and much more experienced than we were. But he chose chose us. And to this day, we're we're honoured by that choice. Maybe he saw some parallels between the way we were working in a very kind of small DIY nature and the way in which he'd begun remote area medical at the very beginning, which was very much um, the kind of pioneer spirit. Hey, you know, mm-hmm. just just get some dental chairs and get some donated drugs and get the med- any medical practitioners we can find and just let's just get up there into those those hills mm-hmm. um, around Tennessee, around Knoxville, and and do one of these clinics. You know, initially the organisation started doing clinics around East Tennessee, Virginia, Kentucky. Georgia um but over the 25 years that they've been operating they've now spread to east coast west coast they're a truly nationwide organization perhaps uh so there is the british connection so he, he was he was born in somewhere in england i presume and uh, uh he wound up in, in in the united states but he chose a british filmmaking crew uh do you think that was maybe part of it and also why would a British film crew be interested in healthcare in the United States? I think for Stan's part, and you know, it's always hard to speak for the people that are in your films. My, my job is mm-hmm. creating a space where they can speak for themselves. But I think for Stan's part, he was at a time in life in his 70s mm-hmm. where he perhaps wanted to reconnect with that British history, his British past. Maybe that was what part of his motivation mm-hmm. uh, in 2014 he came to the united kingdom and gave a speech at the royal society of medicine and was discussing potentially the idea of running a remote aerial medical clinic in the united kingdom interestingly mm-hmm. which never came to fruition 
uh, there's lots of like legal and sort of regulatory problems with doing that. Um, but it didn't quite happen. So I think there might have been some of that. I mean, like I said, you know, the same ethos with British. I think I think I would never um, flatter myself to say that I was his kindred spirit, but I think he did see something because we, like I said, we weren't, we weren't a big outfit. He kind of took a chance on us. How does one though get to the point where you have the you go from the idea to the mm. subject matter, introducing yourself to the subject matter? When did you start filming him? Um, the first time we went to film Stan was in April 2012. The process of developing an idea from the the initial concept to beginning filming is a ton of research, a ton of like good old human com communication and talking to people and getting a feel for them. Not necessarily getting every detail of their story, actually, but getting a sense of like the rhythm of their daily life or way that they communicate with people or who they might call their family or their um what's that word people use like friends who are family like what do they define as their closest kind of mm -hmm. confidants mm -hmm. um and then i mean before you go you always try to conceive of the methods and techniques that you'd use we, I was a bit of a naive film school purist who wanted to do, the, you know, the purely observational work, you know, with me just melting into the background and you having this wonderful objective window on Stan Brock's world. But when I met Stan, I realised that wasn't going to be possible, that it probably wasn't fair to ask a man to tell these incredibly deep and impactful stories just like on the hoof, you know, while he's washing dishes to me, like telling me about how um, he tamed his first horse or how he saw a man die in his arms, you know, when they were in um, Guyana and the guy got sick when they were driving cattle across the savannas. Stuff that, you know, really makes, it, uh, makes an impression on people. So then I thought, well, okay, we need to sit, stand down in a chair and really... This is 80 years of a man's life. There's a lot to get through. So we, we started to use formal interviews, you know, and then you discover, oh, Stan didn't just run this ranch. He was actually a big part of the TV show. And you realize, okay, there's all this archive out there. So you think, well, we'll use the archive. And then that grows into stills, you know, photographs. And um, I even wanted to use animation, but, you know, the, the producer began to walk out at that point because, you know, we didn't quite have the resources and the film had been going on for so long. You've got all this, I didn't even mention, you've got all this actuality stuff of what they're actually doing at uh, remote, remote area medical clinics every week. So you've got all these different things happening. And we decided, right, we're actually going to try and make this work, where you've got, like, present-day footage, all the backstory, all the archive, the stills, um, you know, drone shots, interviews with Stan, some slow-mo stuff. It's a it's a stylistic mishmash, but I think, I hope, I hope we kind of pulled it off because we had some fantastic editors that made all these different elements flow. With a subject like this, that... that uh that seeing an outsider's perspective, even though he's also British, you know, about mm. this, obviously you're also looking at a healthcare system. And of course, at a time when the NH, when the National Health Service in England is also having its own existential crisis. Indeed, yeah. Uh, 
you know, is this a film about healthcare as much as it's a film about Stan Brock? It's a film about learning to care, you could say. Um, I feel that in, obviously, that Stan's journey, but I feel that in the time that I was in America, 2012 until 2020, um, you could see people becoming more aware of the lack of healthcare for their fellow citizens. People becoming more empathetic and people beginning to dissociate the right for healthcare from any kind of political persuasion. And I, I mean, I hope that's where we are now in America, that the issue of healthcare can be seen as a human and a humanitarian issue, first and foremost, not a political issue. Mm-hmm. Therefore, an issue that all sides of the political divide support and want to see change in and want to see an improvement in, even if that means reducing the role of the market. And I think that's the tough, the tough one. Um, and if you watch the film, there are there is a couple who are treated, and they're very much kind of red state Republican people, and they embody the um, the difficulty in trying to conceive of a new system, I think, where it's kind of like less, perhaps less of the market forces and more of the government involvement, be that state government or federal government. or you know, He never got political. He really tried to rise above all that stuff. He's all about bringing people together, regardless of like their political beliefs. It's not a film about trying to shove it down people's throats that there's a problem. I think I've said before that it's a film about learning to care, but I think the film ultimately ends up being a celebration of what American people can do when they come together as a community and help out their fellow citizen. And that's the very thing, actually, that really captivated Stan about the United States in the first place. And that's why he stayed. And that's why he decided to start this in the United States, because it's perhaps one of few places where people have got the necessary get up and go to make something like this happen. That was Paul Michael Angel, the director of the documentary Medicine Man, the Stan Brock story. That is screening at the Virginia Film Festival this Sunday at 1.30 p.m. See if you can get tickets. Maybe I'll see you there. And that's it for this installment of Charlottesville Community Engagement. Thank you so much for listening. There will be another installment tomorrow and then the week ahead on Sunday. This is a There's a lot that has gone on and there's a lot that still needs to be written about. And that's what I aim to do as often as I can. Assisting me in that quest is you and the rest of the audience out there. You guys are really uh, contributing, which is really great. About a third of the audience is making some sort of financial contribution to ensure that I'm able to put this on uh, as often as I can. One way you can help do that is through Substack. If you subscribe at $5 a month, $25 a year, $50 a year, or $200 a year, Ting, the company Ting, the internet company, they you could be listening this through Ting, maybe. They will match those contributions, which is fantastic because that, again, helps me continue going with this. And we have a lot of things and a lot of problems that we have to try to figure out as a community, as a world, as a state. That's sometimes very difficult to do. But the reason I do this work as often as I can is because I believe that getting you information uh, and getting you access to as much as possible uh, will hopefully make the world a better place, at least 
That's what I try to tell myself every day. I'm Sean Tubbs, the host of this program. I will be back, as I said. I need to get going on the next one. But in the meantime, thank you very much and stay safe out there and stay dry. <laughs>